Hello and welcome to Upfront on the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington. On this edition of Upfront, young Kenyan entrepreneurs behind a new fintech startup that seeks to solve the issue of money transfers to Africa. People living and working outside their home countries who are really struggling to send money back home. And why? Because, you know, many of them, you know, still use traditional, you know, channels of sending money back home. That is Hempstone Maroria, one of the founders of Wirepay, a Kenyan-based fintech startup that is offering a platform to transfer money from all over the the world to Africa through mobile money wallets. Now, even though Africa has 60% of the world's arable land, new reports warn that climate change, conflict, rising food and fuel prices are pushing millions on the continent towards hunger. It's more about how we're using the land because if you're thinking about longer term, we can't convert everything uh, into agriculture. Then we won't have forests, we won't have you know, sufficient water to sustain even agriculture in itself or you know water for home use or industrial use. That is Ugandan-American scientist Dr. Catherine Nakalemba. And why are Nigerian students currently protesting? We'll have those stories and more right here on Upfront. But as always, we start off by listening to your voices in our Upfront on the Streets Africa segment. Democracy is there, but to a small extent. Because uh, you cannot say that there is no democracy. It's there, but to what level? Like in Uganda, of course, there is no freedom that we expect. Freedom of speech, freedom of even education is not totally there. Even in election, see the recent election, people were humiliated, they were not uh, given their rights, would not exercise the freedom. There is democracy, but to a small extent. Democracy is there, but some people are violating it, of course. Yeah. Some of them are beaten, but uh, according to me, some of them are being beaten because also they are violating some, some rules. My country is not democratic because according to the way you understand democracy, it's the government of people, for the people, and by the people. Meaning, it is a government made up of people. And these people are chosen by federal people when the election is fair. But according to our elections, the general elections are not fair in the country where some people are not allowed to vote for their leaders of choice. Many thanks to you, our listeners. We always enjoy listening to your opinions, more of your voices later on in the show. Now, at the start of the COVID-19 global pandemic, the World Bank and other international financial institutions projected a massive drop in remittances flowing to Africa. Remittances refer to money sent by migrants to their families in their home countries. And studies show that in 2019, a year before the pandemic, financial payments to Africa were estimated to be over $40 billion, a figure that, according to experts, far exceeds money received in foreign direct investment and development aid, or what they call foreign aid. Now, at the height of the pandemic, job losses and high unemployment rates in immigrant populations led to a decline in their ability to send money home. But that trend reversed in 2021, and according to the World Bank, 
remittances to sub-Saharan Africa not only returned to pre-pandemic levels, but also increased to $45 billion. However, the cost of sending money to Africa is still very high when compared to other regions of the world. Finding a solution to this problem has inspired a number of young African entrepreneurs, including Hempstone Maroria and David Wachira. They are using new innovative financial technologies to create cheaper ways for migrants to send money back home. They joined me on the show to talk to us about their startup company, Wirepay, which was created after many of their migrant friends and relatives often complained that the traditional channels of sending money back home were either inefficient, expensive, or inconvenient. You know, Wirepay is, um, you know, a financial technology company that is digitizing banking and remittances for African immigrants that are living and working outside their home countries. And, um, you know, primarily why we started Wirepay is because we saw a gap in, you know, two main areas. Number one, people living and working outside their home countries who are really struggling to send money back home. And why? Because, you know, many of them, you know, still use traditional, you know, channels of sending money back home, which are often very inefficient, expensive, um, you know, and inconvenient. Um, so Wirepay is bringing, you know, um, new opportunities for people living and working outside their home countries to be able to send money back home, um, majorly focused on the U.S. to Africa um, corridors. And beyond that, we are also unlocking financial opportunities by opening bank accounts um, for, you know, African immigrants that live within the USA. And so will be expanding to the UK, um, Europe, and other parts of Africa. Mm. Uh, Wachira, how, uh, you know, the last two years, almost two and a half years, we've been in a global pandemic, uh, lots of uh, unemployment, especially, you know, in, not especially in the migrant community, but it has been affected quite a lot, the people who are sending remittances. How has that reflected in the, in the amount of money that is flowing onto the continent, and how is that affecting your business? Yeah, that's an interesting uh, question because remittances are a big source of foreign direct investment uh, for the continent and particularly for Kenya. So you'll find that the expectation was during the pandemic remittances would dip just like everything else was dipping. Uh, but that has not been the case. Uh, largely, we're seeing that remittances, particularly to these developing countries like Kenya, are uh, what we call inelastic, in that they don't follow the cycle of the economy. And what typically happens is that put yourself in a shoe of the person who's actually sending them Money, what are they sending the money for? Usually they're the support or the bread earner sometimes for these families. So usually when troubles hit, you tend to send more, not send less. And so you're finding that over year on over turnover, 2019 uh, was, uh, we expected 2020 to be much lower compared to 2019. But in fact, the, the opposite was true. 2020 was much higher than 2019, even in the middle of a pandemic. And 2021 was much higher than 2020, despite the pandemic. Because mm, I've, I've thought that because of, you know, closures, a lot of unemployment, people were working less and able to have the disposable income to send back home. Yeah, people were indeed working less, uh, but you'll find that a lot of migrants, particularly from the Kenyan community, sometimes are professionals. So there was this work from home tendency. So you saw a lot of people still working from there. Uh, on top of it, um, a lot of immigrants tend to be in the essential workers category, uh, they, either whether they're working for restaurants or, uh, or grocery stores or so forth. So uh, they were still able to work and were uh, still able to get the resources that they typically got. On top of that, there was the 
aid that came in from the uh, both the Trump and the Biden administration, uh, the economic stimulus plan. And that allowed people to have a lot more uh, income that they typically had before, at least based on, on that. And they were able to send a lot of that back mm. home. So you still found you know, remittances going up. And how does WirePay differentiate itself from other existing players in this space? Um, so um, ideally, WirePay is building a new age in the digital banking and remittance services. And um, ideally, um, you know, we are looking beyond what, you know, conventional players in the industry are offering. And that's why we have embedded, you know, digital banking services to enable African immigrants not only to just use WirePay as a means of sending money back home, but with WirePay, they are able to actually open bank accounts, you know, get debit cards, open savings and checkings bank accounts at least within the USA um, so that over and above, you know, just sending money back home and remitting back money back home, they are able to also um, access other financial services. And this was driven by our research and interactions with our customers because the bulk majority of customers that live and work outside their home countries actually spend the bigger percentage of that money within the countries where they live in. You know, as an example, um, David, um, my co-founder here who works for the World Bank, while he sends a significant amount of money back home, investing back home, the bulk majority of his money is actually spent within the USA. And, um, you know, that's how, you know, WirePay differentiated itself from the market by being able to create a model that not only gives people an opportunity to send money back home, but actually to be able to receive their salaries within the USA, Mm -hmm. to be able to spend money using their debit cards that are issued, um, you know, once you open the WirePay bank account. And we've packed other embedded financial services, like savings, you know, with, um, you know, a piggy bank feature within WirePay, um, people are able to open savings accounts, you know, and save towards goals, whether it's, you know, buying a new car, buying a new home. Um, and in future, we are working with our partner banks to be able to access, um, to open up credit, you know, and loans for the immigrant communities that are often underbanked and even over- overlooked um, by traditional banking channels within the USA. Mm. Um, so we've been able to create a model that not only um, you know works best during remittances but actually services the needs of immigrants you know in the countries mm-hmm. where they live and work in case you're just joining us this is upfront on the voice of america i'm jackson vungani we are chatting with hempstone maroria and david wachira two young kenyan entrepreneurs behind a new fintech startup wirepay you know, fintech, which is short for financial technology, is the technology and innovation that seeks to change or challenge traditional financial methods in the delivery of financial services. And economic analysts say that Africa is actually leading the rest of the world when it comes to fintech innovation, as millions around the continent have embraced the emerging industry that uses technology to improve activities in finance and more especially in mobile money. Might I add on to that? Yeah. I mean, uh, the key point here is to take a look at, we asked ourselves, what is the immigrant uh, in in the U.S. experiencing? And that part was a little bit easier for us to settle because we, we came in as, as immigrants. So what pinch points were we um, trying to unlock or, or, or solve for the immigrant? One, for example, is if as an immigrant, it is very difficult to access banking service within the United States for the vast majority of the 44 million immigrants that are here. Why? Because the typical, as Hempstone mentioned, the typical bank usually overlooks 
uh, immigrants when it comes to the offering of the banking services. So put my, my, my case, for example. I came in as a student. It was very difficult for me to open a bank account uh, in my in my bank, largely because the bank was asking for this identity documentation that I didn't have. I wasn't here illegal, and I'm not saying that. Uh, other, and others who are have an even more difficult time. I was here in a, on a legal capacity, but even then, I could not open a bank account because what the bank was asking me to take, I didn't have. Mm. Uh, they the, were, the, the local banks did not account for yes, your situation. Yes, the local bank, even the large banks where a bank had Chase. To this day, I have to walk in even though I have a checking account that I've been using for the last 12 years, each time I need to do an actual change, like uh, like add on something or, or, or do something that is beyond using my debit card or withdrawing money, the identity documentation that they ask me is my passport. And on an average day, you don't walk, you don't around, walk around with your passport yeah. every single time. And so you, you're like, oh, I need to run to the bank for something. Oh, I left my passport at home, right? So it creates this particular uh, you know cycle where you find that immigrants tend to go to the bodegas and all these other places in terms of accessing uh, money. So they may work uh, jobs where they get a, a cash or they may get a check. So they'll go to a check cashing to in, to use that money in, in cash. So we have, we have changed that by allowing immigrants to actually open bank accounts using the identity documents that they have. So for us, for example, once we are fully live, you'll be open to open a bank account without needing an SSN, a social security number, because we can verify your identity through other mechanisms that our banking partners have allowed us to. So you make the whole process easier for the immigrant. The, your banking partners are able to trust you enough to give you access to this type of documentation for you to be able to verify? Yeah, so what it is is that if you think of the traditional banking structure within the United States, most banks will ask for a social security number as the common identity verification feature. It's not the only way to verify someone's identity. Mm -hmm. uh, and even though they ask for an SSN, um, it doesn't mean that if you don't have one or you don't provide it, you can't open a bank account. It just becomes the most common feature and banks don't think beyond that particular model. So you come in with a passport, they look at you and see if you're foreign. Or if you come in with an ID that's not tied into a social security number, they're like, no, 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 but we need your social. Uh, so it creates this particular chicken egg problem. So most immigrants like just throw up their hands in the air and are not able to access banks. Uh, there are banks that are, that are sensitive to that. And this is where we have come in in that particular uh, play in that we want to be sensitive to the immigrant challenges when it comes to access to banking. We say that they're underserved. You've often overlooked by the traditional banking channels, and we can change that. And what we're trying to say is that immigrants, uh, you know, contribute 1.3 trillion U.S. dollars per year to the economic sector within the U.S. That's a significant amount of money compared to what they're sending outside. And if they're doing it in very fragmented ways, we're here to solve that problem. Bring it together, yeah. unify it. Kenyan entrepreneurs Hampstead Maroria and David Wachira talking about their new fintech startup, Wirepay. Wirepay was a finalist in the 2020 Africa Fintech Summit. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Yes, women of today are struggling. But I think you wouldn't compare their struggles to those of the past. I would say technology has exposed the world to so many things. Let's just look at education. For a woman to make it even in university, she needs a lot of effort. For the women of the past, education was not a priority. Marriage was a priority at that time. Meanwhile, the world has changed. Everything has changed. We are in a modern world. In the past, we didn't have an internet. 
uh, in the past people did not observe some human rights and this time around the women have been recognized in, in as far as human rights is concerned and in the past, because women were not empowered, men were abusing them in so many ways. Were not considered as important as men. But now, many girls are educated. Uh, most of women in Malawi, they are still not employed because uh, we still have this gender gap in our country uh, whereby some women are not considered as material for professional jobs. That's a very big challenge. On that one, I'd say women are suffering because they would look for a job for most six months and then they just get tired and leave it. Welcome back. This is Upfront on the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani. Now, even though Africa has 60% of the world's arable land, a new report warns that climate change Conflict, rising and fuel prices are pushing millions on the continent towards hunger. The report by the International Committee of the Red Cross says that over 340 million people in Africa are facing severe food insecurity in the worst crisis since 2017. The ICRC blames conflict in areas like northern Ethiopia's Tigray province, Somalia, South Sudan, and other conflict hotspots like Ukraine, which disrupted wheat exports to Africa, for exacerbating famine-like conditions for populations already struggling with the COVID-19 global pandemic. But are there other factors contributing to food insecurity on the continent? And for that, I reached Dr. Catherine Nakalembe, the Africa Program Director under NASA's Harvest Africa Program. All right, so Dr. Nakalembe, thank you so much for joining us today. Briefly, wanted to ask you about uh, issues related to food insecurity on the continent. And my first question is, um, how do we explain that a continent with a lot of uh, unused land is unable to feed itself? What are some of the reasons behind that? Um, I think fundamentally it's not about um, having a lot of unused land because there's definitely a lot of places where uh, a lot of land is under conservation, which has you know huge benefits even for if you're thinking about agriculture productivity. Um, it's more about how we're using the land, because if you're thinking about longer term, we can't convert everything uh, into agriculture, then we won't have forests, we won't have, you know, sufficient water to sustain even that, you know, even agriculture in itself or, you know, water for home use or industrial use, whatever the case. I think it is um, Something about productivity, how we're using the current land. So, you know, investing in inputs as well as practices that make, you know, uh, land a bit more productive. Um, If you're thinking about, you know, a lot of farmers operating with, you know, basically nothing uh, and then not able to access, uh, it could be be good seeds, it could be fertilizer, but they don't have access to information that could make, you know, agriculture more productive for them, for example, early warning forecasts in order for them to plan. Sometimes there's very little information about suitability of the types of crops that they're trying to grow in those areas. With climate change, you know, um, the utility of current land, you know, changes. So you might find that even though it was highly productive to grow maize in a certain area 10 years ago, that might not be the case right now, but farmers still continue to grow those, those, uh, those crops. And so you know, you, you deal with data in, in your job. What does the data tell us about the, the future, the cap, especially the capacity of African countries 
to feed their populations? I think what it what it tells us is that um, without you know actual investment in sustainable practices, uh, current agricultural land will become less and less productive. So we would definitely not be able to we produce less with the same land, and expansion is not necessarily the solution. So you know, clearing forests has been shown, you know, after a couple of years that a productivity of that land goes down. And so I think what it's telling us is that we need to think more strategically and longer term. So we shouldn't think about purely conversion. We should think about um, sustained uh, growth in terms of productivity, that we can improve where we're growing crops right now. If you look at um, the differences in yield productivity, for example, again, for maize, you find that uh, fields in Africa, you know, uh, estimated to be at two tons per hectare, yet in other places we're looking at eight, nine, ten tons per hectare, you know, and that's, you know, fundamentally the difference. And so, um, working right. to improve that would yield a lot of uh, positives um, for you know feeding uh, Africa. Right, and you know my final question to you, uh, Dr. Nakalembe, is: Is it a pr- an, an issue of primarily production or even access? Because if you're able to produce the food, but you're not able to take it to the market, isn't that a problem in itself? Absolutely. I mean, uh, one of the biggest, you know, one of the, if you're talking about food loss and food waste, so in Africa, you know, in Sub-Saharan Africa, majority of the food is lost, uh, not wasted. So that means that from when it's harvested to, uh, it's lost in between harvesting and, you know, by the time it gets to the market, always lost at the market. So it's not actually consumed. So that's one and it's infrastructure, it is storage, you're looking at roads, storage, you're looking at processing, uh, while, you know, tomatoes could be processed at the farm and canned and, you know, used a lot, a lot longer, majority of the tomatoes in Africa are lost um, in transit or at the farm. And so those types of things that fundamentally have to be addressed. You can, mm. There's a lot of people that you could feed with the food that's actually lost and lost on, um, the, way. Okay. Yeah, lost on the way. So there's a lot of like post-harvest losses that could be addressed for sure. Yeah. You know, one of our staple crops, which was uh, bananas, most uh, traders would complain that the bananas uh, get ripe on the trucks mm-hmm. as they are struggling to reach the market. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. A lot. I mean, if you go to a market, you see a lot of uh, food that's kind of thrown away. Uh, It's it's not edible at that point, but then a lot of it could be could be saved. It's a different story when you're looking at, uh, you know, places like the United States where food is actually wasted. So people buy more than they need or, um, you know, and it ends up in the trash. So that's a whole other a whole other problem and maybe a problem that would soon become a problem. And as you know, communities uh, you know some you know parts of the population become affluent but uh largely right. the majority That's a better problem to have than than i guess uh you know just not being able to access the food um but uh dr nakalembe we are running out of time but thank you so much for taking time really appreciate uh, uh giving us some insight on this uh, very important issue thank you 
And let's go to West Africa in Nigeria, Africa's most populous nation. Students in the country are protesting a three-month extension of a strike by university lecturers. The lecturers stopped teaching classes in February over unresolved paid disputes with authorities. Timothy Obiezu has been covering this and he reports from Abuja in Nigeria. The protests across some Nigerian states this week followed Monday's announcement by the Academic Staff Union of Universities, ASU. Hundreds of students in Lagos, Kwara and Edo states poured onto the streets protesting an end to the school strikes. It is the second time the ASU has extended the strike since it began in February. President of the union, Emmanuel Osodiki, says the decision to continue the strike was difficult but necessary. I have to three or four children in school who are doing with me, so I'm also affected. So it's not that all our lecturers cannot afford to send their children across. We are fighting for what will benefit all Nigerian students in Nigeria as a country. That students can come from all over the world to attend our university and have quality lecturers. That's what we are fighting for. And everybody, if he's successful, will benefit from it, including the student. They will have good education. The lecturers' union wants the government to implement a 2009 agreement to provide $500 million in earned allowances and revitalization fees to the union and public universities. Authorities and the ASU on Sunday failed to reach an agreement. In March, Nigeria's labor minister said authorities have paid about $230 million and did not have the funds to pay more. Johnson Kolawali Michael says protests will expand to every state in the coming days if the strike is not addressed. So, so we are actually having a mass protest, which we are shutting down every every state. Every state is shutting down. We will go to the airport, we will block the airport, block the federal road in every state for the federal government of Nigeria to know that we are not happy with the country and um, Nigerian students are tired. We are tired of staying at home. If you can see what is going on now, there are many people who are at home doing nothing. And you know, an ideas person is a devil workshop. Strikes over pay disputes have been occurring in Nigeria for decades and often disrupt the academic calendar. Student Samuel Dambanji gained admission to study theater and media arts in 2019. Uh, it has really affected and is still affecting students like me. Like it has been a thorn on the flesh to students in Nigeria. I'm supposed to be in my final year now, but because of the strike, I'm still in 200 level and the strike is still ongoing. So these are the things that uh, we are talking about. Like in my 100 level, I spent, I spent close to two years in the same level. In 2020, the union strike lasted nine months, the longest in recent history. Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. And that's it for this edition of Upfront on the Voice of America. Many thanks to our guests and to you, our listeners, for tuning in. And special thanks for you who contributed your voices. We always enjoy listening to what you have to say about a range of topics on issues that affect your lives. Visit our website at voanews.com to listen to previous episodes of Upfront and catch our other shows on African news and features. And remember to connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, we are on Twitter, and on Instagram. Just search for VOA Upfront. Until next time, I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington wishing you a great week ahead, Africa.
Hello, this is Heather Maxwell, host of Music Time in Africa. Join me every Saturday and Sunday for an hour of awesome African music. Like to stay on top of new music trends? Breakout artists? New releases? Maybe you just love the classic styles and artists of the past. Or simply the sound and feel of a good beat. Whatever your pleasure, you can get it every week right here on Music Time in Africa. So join me on your local FM station, Saturdays and Sundays at 1500 and 2000 UTC. Border Crossings. Join host Larry London. Larry London. On Border Crossings, VOA's only worldwide music request hour. Every weekday at 1500 Universal. Tune in for the biggest hits and amazing artists. Win prizes and get the latest news from exclusive celebrity interviews. Send your requests to Facebook at VOA Larry London, Twitter at Border Crossings, or Instagram at Border Crossings VOA. Or call 202-619-2077 and have your favorite music played to the entire world. Don't miss Border Crossings every weekday at 1500 Universal, only on The Voice of America.